This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I am Deb Hutton. I'm your host this afternoon. Thanks for joining me. We'll be here from noon to two o'clock this afternoon. We got a busy show, lots happening. Of course, we'll get an update in just a little bit on the latest in the federal inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act. Two cabinet ministers appearing today, Marco Mendicino, who's public safety minister, and Dominic LeBlanc, who is the intergovernmental affairs minister, both testifying the first of a, a number of days of political uh, attendees at the inquiry. So interesting. We'll also take a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes if you're a politician, to prep for something of this nature. We're going to chat with the head of NASA's Orion Lunar Spacecraft Program, who says that humans can be living and working on the moon by the end of the decade, 2030. So that'll be an interesting chat. But I want to start the show off by talking about organ donation. And I want to hear from you, one 855 633-1010. want to hear your thoughts on what we can and should be doing to increase the level of organ donation and tissue donation in this country. Less than a quarter of us have actually signed up for donation upon our death. And I think more of us think we've signed up than may have. And that's part of the challenge. But there are honestly less than 25% of us who, if we pass away, despite having made our wishes known in some forums, may not in fact technically be registered. There's a new idea out. And again, want to hear from you. 1-855-633-1010. Ontario and Nunavut have signed an agreement with the Canadian Revenue Agency. And essentially what happens is when you, if you, if you are a taxpayer in Ontario, or in Nunavut, when you file your taxes, there's a little box you can tick off. And what CRA does with that is they send your info back to the provincial government, and then the provincial government has a chance to follow up and give you some information on whether uh, uh, you really want to be an organ donor. And, and while I love creative ideas around organ do donation, while I want us all if we are comfortable with it, to be organ donors. I have given, uh, I've given my consent through my driver's license. Uh, my husband knows my wishes. I, I same for him. But I think we need to make sure that we have a clear system that allows us to make our wishes known and are legally known. And I'm just not so sure that I like Canada Revenue Agency being involved in this. Part of my issue and again, I love creative ideas around it. Part of my issue is I think of all parts of government that should stick to their knitting, Canadian Revenue Agency, CRA, Canada Revenue Agency, should be one that strictly collects our taxes, makes sure we pay our taxes, and does nothing else. One eight five five six three three ten ten. Do you like this idea? If if you are in Ontario and Nunavut, or if you're in other provinces, do you think this is something you'd like your province to do? It's easy. You're filing your taxes. You tick a box. The province follows up with you and says, "Hey, here's the information for our province. Let's uh, let's get you signed up." Nova Scotia has something that I know is controversial, and that is the sort of presumed presumed consent program, where it is assumed 
if you live in Nova Scotia, that you will be a donor on death unless you opt out of it. A bit of a negative option approach to it. And while I think it's great to get more people signed up, I'm not convinced that that's an appropriate form. So here I am crapping on two ideas, saying I'm open to ideas, but crapping on two ideas that provinces have actually brought forward. 1-855-633-1010. What's your thought? If you believe we need more organ donations, as do I, are either of these ideas palatable for you? Or are there better ideas to make sure we get more donors and we get past that miserable less than a quarter of our population? Let's go to Mira in Brampton. Mira, what's your thought on this issue? thinking was we definitely do need to increase awareness around organ donation and even other kinds of donations like blood donation, bone marrow, and all that kind of stuff. The best way that the government needs to do this is rather than, you know, changing our license plates uh, and wasting money on things like that, do some social media. That's where everyone gets all their information at this point. And they need to target certain um, age ranges. So like for me, when I was 40 is when I started thinking about um, bone marrow donation, but now I'm past the, the age of it. They need to target certain people and they need to get the, the message out there. I don't think it's appropriate that the person who collects my taxes is the one who's going to tell me about the organ donation. I also don't think that having, um, you know, an opt-out program is good because that's not informed consent. People don't even know. And we have a lot of people living in our province that are, are English is a second language. Perhaps they don't even know that this exists here. So maybe targeting our actual population would help. All right. I think I'm with you. As I said, I I want ideas. I want us to increase the percentage of Canadians who are automatically going to be donors upon their death. But I'm uncomfortable with the two ideas that have come up. Thanks so much for the call, Mayor. Let's go to Bill in Waterloo. Bill, what's your thought on this issue? Yes. Thanks, Deb. No Um, problem. Definitely CRA should not be in the uh, organ donor uh, collection business. Uh, This should uh, I'm I've signed off on mine. And I, I think this, this needs to be promoted by another department, not by CRA, um, because it begins to normalize what they can intrude on with respect to other facets of your life. And we already have four, uh, obligatory payments of income taxes, etc. I'd hate for obligatory organ donation uh, through negative option billing and so forth. This is a personal choice. I believe we should be doing more, but other departments, such as Department of, or Ministry of Health, should be the one promoting it if it's that important. Yeah, Bill, I think uh, you and I are on the same page with this one. Thanks for the call. Um, and, and just to be clear, what, what happens with CRA is you tick a box, again, if you are in, in Ontario or Nunavut, that says, yes, I'd like more information. CRA then transfers in Ontario your name and, and most recent email address. In Nunavut, it's actually your name, your email, and your mailing address. And then the, the provincial government, which, as Bill said, is the right uh, authority for this, follows up. My issue, I think, is not so much this in isolation, but the notion that CRA is doing anything outside of collecting our taxes and and all things associated with that. Let's go to Patricia in Ottawa. What's your idea, Patricia? Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I do not have a problem with assumed consent, and that puts the responsibility on someone who does not want to be an organ donor to to, um, take the necessary steps. I think sometimes when death happens, 
the need is it's very important to be able to know that they can go ahead and uh, harvest the organs so they can be a benefit to others. And most people I've talked to, they don't seem to have a problem with the idea that anything that they don't need after death, um, someone else is welcome to, to use. And those can be magnificent gifts. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm with you on the importance of it. Uh, the, the issue is how do we make sure we get that number higher than 24? So you, Patricia, I think are, are supporting the Nova Scotia option, which is it is presumed that everybody will be an organ donor unless you tell us otherwise. Thanks for the call, Patricia. Yeah. Uh, Steve in Perth. Now, is this Perth County or Perth uh, the town? The, the, the prettiest town in, in Ontario. Uh, Steve, I come from Perth County. I live in Perth, Ontario, which is Lanark County. <laughs> All right. What's your thought on this topic? Definitely not. The government should not be involved in this situation. The government has their nose everywhere else, right? So the federal government, you mean? The or federal government. Okay. Nope, 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 nope. I do not trust the government now. I do not trust Doug Ford. And I feel that if a person wants to donate their body, right? Close to their body. Yeah. When they die, that would be good. That would be good if they want to do it. That's fine, right? You just don't want the government to be involved in the in I the process. Want, okay. I don't want no government to be involved with my personal. They already know enough about us. They know everything about us. They even know, I mean, everything, right? All right. And my, my personal opinion is definitely not the government being involved with situations like this. All right, Steve, thanks for the call. Uh, Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from former OPP Commissioner in Ontario, Chris Lewis, on the latest in the federal inquiry. It's Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host this afternoon. And what is happening right now is that Minister of Public Safety, Marco Mendocino, is still testifying as one of two cabinet ministers we expect to hear from today at the inquiry into the federal government's handling and and invocation of the Emergencies Act. I just want to give you a little bit of flavor. As I said, it is still ongoing, but a little flavor of what we heard from Minister Mendocino this morning, talking about uh, changing of security details for several of his colleagues because of the protest. We were uh, concerned about whether or not the blockade might target uh, the Prime Minister. And then as you uh, will have heard by now, there were subsequent many threats that were made towards uh, not only public elected public figures, but equally uh, law enforcement and representative of the, of the media. Public Safety Minister also talked about uh, engagement with the uh, protesters. Engagement was always an option. And I had articulated on a number of occasions that law enforcement should be the last resort. I had turned my mind right at the very beginning of uh, the briefings that uh, it was important for uh, there to be some engagement with uh, those who were participating in uh, the convoy and the blockade. And then he actually talks about the prime minister in terms of, quote, engagement. 
there were conversations between the Prime Minister and myself about um, searching for a, a suitable mediator or interlocutor, someone who would have had the experience to de-escalate and resolve um, um, situations that are complex. So to help us understand what's been said today and to break down uh, these last few days of testimony is Chris Lewis, CTV Public Safety Analyst and the former Commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police. Welcome to News Talk Today, Chris. Hi, Deb. So what's your take on, on the second last clip in particular? He, he, Marco Mendocino said that law enforcement should be the last resort. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I don't really know what uh, that means particularly or nor what he means often when he talks, to be honest. Uh, I think he meant that kind of the use of force, the, the moving in, making arrests, uh, as opposed to law enforcement negotiates, law enforcement de-escalates, law, enforcement's build, or law enforcement builds relationships and tries to get people to you know, move by consent. So I think he meant the use of force. Gotcha. And so then they, he went on, as you heard, to talk about mediation. I will say as a, as a former political staffer, the notion that you would engage while people are still under uh, uh, still undertaking an occupation is not something that I would have ever advised uh, political uh, figures to do. Do you have thoughts on this notion of mediation? I guess he's not directly saying that the government would talk to the occupiers, but he's looking for a way to de-escalate. Yeah, I think both options were on the table. Uh, you know, like he said, bring in a mediator, someone that's used to dealing with this not specific issue, but, you know, the overall kind of tension and political issues. Um, you know, the use of a prime minister or a minister in a case like that, it's, it's almost like negotiating with terrorists in some respects, although they're far from it. Uh, and, you know, there's real strong feelings that that's never appropriate. But at what point do you say, you know, is it worth a shot? You know, would 10 minutes, if they just scream and holler, don't let you talk, then you walk away. At least you tried. But maybe it would work. So I don't know. I I tend to maybe err on the side of caution with that one as kind of almost the last resort uh, to try and have the dialogue. And, uh, you know, he'd be well protected. There's no concerns, you know, from a safety perspective. But uh, the decision is made not to. Yeah, I mean, I guess my concern, uh, as I said, sort of as a former uh, political advisor is that that you – you encourage this type of behavior if, in fact, you get a face-to-face meeting with whether it's the premier or the mayor or the prime minister uh, yeah. if you if you undertake that activity. And so the notion that you would do it while the occupation was happening, I guess, is, is my concern around that. And so was surprised that, as you say, it was on the table. One of the things we were waiting that. for, and, and the testimony is still underway, so this is, is um, a little unfair because we don't know if he will address it. But previously, Marco Mendocino had said that law enforcement – had said that they needed the act. And yet we had not heard from any law enforcement to date in the testimony, and I guess we're pretty well done all of that side of things, that anyone asked for the use of the Emergencies Act. The first time we heard that actually was yesterday from the head of CSIS. So just curious on your thoughts on that. Well, it's in a very, very important issue. It was one I certainly have been waiting to hear the politicians deal with, because I don't know that he was the only minister that said that. He may have been, in fairness, but I know he said it. And, of course, Commissioner OPP, Commissioner RCMP, all the senior command staff from Ottawa Police, including the former chief, all of them said they didn't ask for it. Uh, but he stuck to it for some time, and then that kind of went away. 
so, I mean, that, I think that's a huge trust, trust issue. Um, and uh, he failed that test, I, I believe. So uh, I can't imagine the lawyers aren't all laying in wait for him on that one. Um, and then, of course, and they'll get more into it, I, I, I hope other lawyers will, in relation to the commissioner of the RCMP sending an email to his staff saying, you know, we still have options on the table. You, you know, that's, an, that's a key point because you don't, it's like saying you're going to use fatal force or deadly force in a police shooting when, in fact, you had other options on the table. It would never be accepted. So how could it be accepted they put the act in when they hadn't exhausted all the other means and they now had a plan and they should have known that too and they had enough resources and time to deal with it. So why then? Uh, I I don't get it. I just don't agree with this whole thing uh, in terms of the act right from the beginning. Does the uh, testimony yesterday from the head of CSIS, did that impact your, your point of view at all? No, actually, because we heard similar things. And I see the point around the, the definition being broader. Uh, Commissioner Creek from the OPP made the point that, you know, from an overall security perspective, uh, it's, you know, infrastructure and all those things aren't necessarily within the CSIS definition. Uh, and I get that. I appreciate that. And, and that's certainly a consideration. I just don't think it was met. Uh, the bridges were cleared in Windsor and Coots. Uh, what was the infrastructure issue there? Some highways or, or, or roadways are blocked in Ottawa. It was a major pain and a huge issue, but was that a th- national threat, uh, you know, security threat? If it was, then, and I'm not suggesting they ever sh- we ever should have, but during the National Day of Protest, when we had highways and railways blocked across the country by Indigenous protesters, we never even considered the act. Uh, and that was the hugest overall event probably in Canadian history to that point, followed by Idle No More, where similar things happened. And, and they were Indigenous protests. So we never considered it then, but because horns are honking and trucks are in Ottawa, uh, a lot less uh, impact nationally at that moment once Coots and Windsor were down. We, we turned to that act. I, I struggle with that. I'm speaking with Chris Lewis, who's the CTV public safety analyst and a former commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police. You and I haven't had a chance to chat uh, now that we've sort of wrapped up, as I said, the the policing testimony. This week is largely politicians and and political folks uh, to to finish out the testimony at the inquiry. Just really curious on your take as the former commissioner about what we heard from so many different levels of policing around what, as a layperson, seemed to be just massive confusion and massive incompetence. Is is that actually what, what as a police officer, you heard as well? Well, I, I certainly saw incompetence. I don't know that the incompetence was spread out over all the police departments. Uh, I think there was a failure in leadership, and, and I'll be very blunt with Chief Slowly. Right. Uh, the other organizations uh, were advising him to go a different route, and he didn't want to do it. So you know, it's easy to, to second guess after the fact, but that was a mistake. And I made many of them myself. Uh, and so I, I think the, the disconnects, and I wrote an op-ed about this that's so on CP24 a site as we speak, around the disconnects between police, police officers, police bosses, police leaders, uh, the political bosses within the government and, you know, bureaucrats versus political, or, you know, elected officials. And, and, and there's a whole pile of disconnects there. I don't think sends a good message at all. And I think we deserve better as Canadians in terms of people getting their act together on such big issues uh, during the, the process of it and the days to follow, as opposed to, you know, pushing 10 months 
of confusion and, and misstatements and, and uh, apparently not a bunch of people singing from the same song sheet from day one. That's unacceptable, Mike. Chris Lewis, CTV uh, public safety analyst and former commissioner of the OPP. We truly appreciate your insights. Thanks for joining me on News Talk today. Coming up after the break, Amanda Lang is going to talk to us about the burden we're all carrying as a result of interest rates. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk today. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host for News Talk Today, Deb Hutton. So there have been so many stories, I I was going to say over the last few days, but let's be clear, it's been over the last few weeks and months uh, about the alarm bells uh, that so many people are sounding on the impact of rising mortgage interest costs on personal finances. We're now seeing uh, that the numbers are out for September, October, that yet again, there are calls that we may in fact be facing another housing crash. So to break it down for us, to give us her perspective, maybe put a little bit of clarity into this is Amanda Lang, BNN Bloomberg anchor of Taking Stock, a podcast and weekly business program on Bell Media Networks. Amanda, thanks for joining News Talk today. Great to be with you. So are the alarm bells actually what you think is happening? So I think the word crash is probably heavy, um, and I think most economists would say that uh, although we will likely see a recession, which is, if we're honest here, what the Bank of Canada is trying to achieve, they're trying to achieve a slowdown in spending. Now, they'd like to do it and, and dodge anything serious or long term, but they want us all to spend less. That's why they raise rates. That cools things off. That brings prices down. The concern is, of course, the rates they're raising for most people is mortgage rates, and that makes life more expensive. And will people therefore not be able to afford their mortgages? And here the news gets a bit better, because although there will be some who bought at the very top, who bought mortgages they couldn't afford, things that feel reminiscent of, say, the U.S. in 2007 or even the early 90s here, we're actually in much better shape in Canada for a couple of reasons. One is our savings rate ticked up during the pandemic, so there's a bit of a cushion. The other big one is jobs aren't really at risk. Our labor market is super tight. And at the end of the day, Deb, if you have a job, if your income continues, you're going to be okay. You will change your other spending. So restaurants better look out, theaters better look out. Anything that feels discretionary to people may take a hit, but your mortgage is the first thing you pay because it's the roof over your head. So some people will definitely be in trouble. I think most economists think most people are going to get through this okay. Yeah. And and you mentioned the the 1990s because that's, of course, the best comparison to a a very Mm -hmm. negative time here in Canada as opposed to the U.S. And uh, in October, one of the the articles I read said that the interest costs had increased at a rate that we'd not seen since the 1990s, around 11% October year over year. Quoted in in one of the articles, and again, everybody is is talking about this, whether it's at your dinner table or or as you're reading through social media or mainstream media. One homeowner, they said in March of 2022, so not over a year ago, just a few months ago, their variable interest rate meant a $2,400 a month payment for their mortgage. By end of September, Mm $3,300. That's a huge hike for most families. It is a big jump. And of course, when you think about that year over year, the 11%, the reason that feels so dramatic is it's coming off such a low base. So one of the things that our uh, our regulators did in the last few years was introduce those stress tests 
Some people didn't like them because it cooled the housing market down. But they were designed to ask the question, can you survive if rates go up a few points? And that's all they've done. We should remember that as well, just keep in context. Even today, rates are below the historical average or what we would call normal in Canada, which is closer to 4%. So we're, we're getting there, but we still have a bit of room to rise. And, I, and this is not to dismiss people who are feeling the pain of that increase of hundreds of dollars a month on their, on their mortgage costs. But it's to say what we really need to worry about is when the individual pain turns into the loss of a house, right, the loss of the mortgage, and that turns into a massive economic crunch. And I just don't hear many economists calling for that. You'll get the few at the margin. Most people are saying the economy and the housing market is pretty stable here. So individual pain for sure. But overall, we should be able to weather this. And and your main point, I think I, I heard you say on that, is that while the increases are similar to what we saw in the early 90s, uh, your starting point, therefore your ending point, are very different today. Lower, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I actually did want to talk to you about the stress test because, you know, we do hear, and again, you never know whether people are themselves sounding the alarm bells uh, or whether it's an actual fact. But the stress test should have taken a lot of that out of the market, I would have thought. I know it was very controversial when the federal government brought it in. And I know that that people said it was it was a problem for them in terms of getting financing, but that really was the point. And mm-hmm. and so was it not was it not broad enough or is it actually doing its job? So it's an interesting question because on the one hand the regulators can only control parts of the market. So CMHC, which is a big housing market regulator, it controls the part of the market that it can ensure. If you want to operate outside of that, if you want to operate outside the big banks, you can you, you can get a mortgage from somebody. And what we're actually discovering now, and there's increasing stories about this, and they're all tragic, are people who were, you know, kind of tempted, I want to say, that's a nice word, into mortgages they couldn't afford, they shouldn't have, uh, in order to get a house in a very hot market. Uh, and so we that that's where you're going to see the pain point. For the vast majority that are operating inside the stress test environment, they're probably going to be okay. Although, again, this market is, has had an affordability problem. So if you bought a house in the last few years, you bought at a high watermark. There's just one other thing I want to say, and that is, you see this number 30% decline from the top of the market to the bottom. And I've seen that word, the word crash used to describe that. Fair enough. But let's remember that house prices rose 50% in the pandemic. So a 30% correction, we're still above your 2019 levels. So it's not, we're not talking about anything terrible, although there, again, for some people it will hurt. Overall, for the system, not terrible. So a uh, correction as yeah. opposed to a crash is what you exactly. would you would say as a definition. You know, it's interesting because when I got my first mortgage, the amount that the bank said, and we're going back now 20 plus years, the amount that the bank said I was eligible to finance mm-hmm. and the amount I personally felt I could carry every month was a huge gap. Absolutely. I mean, this is where we we do have to take personal ownership and responsibility because on the other side of the equation is somebody whose bonus depends on the bigger mortgage, let's face it. And so that's where rules help a lot. But they don't they're not factoring in, oh, you want your kid to be able to have ballet lessons, so you better save that money. They just say, Well, you can you've got the extra sixty bucks a week to spend on on the mortgage. We all have to act factor in our own spending. The discretionary part of our budgets, whatever that is right now, is what's gonna be in play. And that will see that will be what softens our economy. So unfortunately, if we do see things like restaurants, theater, uh, travel, all of these things that we can kind of choose not to do temporarily, 
that service sector jobs, service sector jobs were hurt most during the recession. Uh, so that will be painful for people that just went through a painful period. Will there be support for those people this time around? Of course, won't be the same as it was. So I, I do worry about the job losses, where they're going to happen and the vulnerability of those people. But for the whole economy, our labor market remains pretty tight. Yeah, and we're going to talk later in the show, take some of your calls uh, near the end of the of the show about whether you are changing your spending it coming into the Christmas uh, period. So the discretionary mm-hmm. spending, Amanda, that you're talking about is important. So finish that that sort of um, uh, timeline, if you will. So mm-hmm. so mortgage goes to the top of the list for what we pay. That gets more expensive, takes a bite out of our discretionary spending. We don't go to the restaurants. We don't go to the theaters. We we, we don't buy the, the extras that we need. Then what happens? I mean, we know in individual pl- cases, if you're a restaurateur or you're a, a staff at a restaurant, that hurts you. But from an economic perspective, what happens? Yeah, there's a definite knock-on effect. So the gamble, the line that our central bank is walking is that the knock-on effect is short-lived and that we come out the other side, so that we can pause without actually crushing businesses on the way. But that you've hit on the most important point here, which is economically speaking, the sensitive area is the, the cure that kills, right? That we're trying to soften our spending, bring down inflation, and in so doing, we actually crush businesses and then job losses follow. Uh, that there's, there, that's the risk we're in now. And I think there's a period of probably months where this will play out into the spring, uh, after which you'll start to see a bit of clarity around whether we are coming out the other side of this or whether it's actually going to be a, a bit of a circular effect of failed businesses, job job losses, and then people having even less to spend. Okay, 10 seconds. Uh, I'm sure you've answered this question before. What's your prediction for Bank of Canada and its rates? I think they're still going. I wouldn't be surprised with 25 instead of 50 at their next meeting, uh, but I think they're almost done. I think they've signaled that. Not done yet, but almost. Amanda Lang, BNN, thank you so much for your insights and making us feel a slightly bit better about the economy. Thanks, Deb. Coming up after the break, Airbnb, do you use it? Have you had to clean up after yourself? We want to take your calls, one 633 1010 Have you changed your view? Maybe you're not going out at all after that conversation with Amanda. But if you are, what's your thought on Airbnb? Want to hear from you after the break. I'm Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Deb Hutton, your host this afternoon. So do you use Airbnb? Have you used similar platforms over the years? And what's your experience been when you go to walk out the door? one 855 You know, one of the nice things about paying for a hotel is that somebody comes in uh, at least before the pandemic, and made your bed, cleaned the room. You basically slept there, maybe had a drink there, and you didn't have to do anything. Something pretty nice about that, particularly for those of us like myself who are constantly cleaning up after little kids, there is something nice about being at a hotel. But, you know, we've often used Airbnb because it just gives you more flexibility, particularly if you've got little kids. Kids go to bed early. You can still sit out on a on a porch or a deck or a front lawn, similar to when you're at home, and have a drink while the kids are in bed or order in some food. But lately, there have been a lot of complaints about the fact that while it was in many ways a cheaper option to rent an Airbnb over a hotel, 
the cleaning component, that very reason why I might have initially considered a hotel a better option, has gotten out of control for many people. one 1010 I will say in the early going, when my oldest daughter was little, we, we rented a number of cottages. It was before Airbnb, largely in the States, to get away and, and just do a nice family vacation. Uh, but have that extra space. Be able to cook breakfast. That's my big thing. So you don't have to go out first thing in the morning. You can just sit on the beach in your in your house coat and drink a cup of coffee that's far cheaper than going to a restaurant. But one of the downsides was in those early days of rentals, you had to do some what they used to call, in my experience, uh, a swept floor cleaning. So you didn't leave a huge mess, but you also didn't have to go and clean the toilet like you were at home. one 1010 Now it seems as the Airbnb platform has, has continued to evolve in the early going, you could treat it a little bit more like a hotel. You couldn't leave a huge mess, but you certainly didn't have to pull out the vacuum or the broom or the, the comet and clean the, the sink. You didn't have to clean up in the bathroom. You could just walk out the door much more like a hotel. But there have been many complaints lately that that's not the case, that some Airbnb hosts have actually put in extraordinary cleaning um, requirements before you leave and taking a huge deposit on that. Let's have a listen to what the Airbnb CEO said recently on Yahoo Finance Live. Well, you shouldn't have to do cleaning when you get out the door. So what we're asking hosts is to do reasonable tasks not ask for anything unreasonable. We're setting new guidelines. And anything a host requests, we want to make sure that's upfront stated so you know what you're getting into before the booking. And then he went on to talk about what is reasonable in a request. So a reasonable task is like lock the door when you leave, turn out the thermostat. Maybe don't leave food out in the kitchen if the host can't come back for a couple days because animals can get in. But an unreasonable task is like uh, uh, a task is like strip the bed and do laundry. I hear you. Although I, I got to say, I would never leave food in somebody else's kitchen for the very reason he points out. We've often been asked as well to just take out the garbage when we have rented either through some of the other platforms or Airbnb. Also seems pretty reasonable to me that you take your bag of garbage and you drop it wherever they tell you to, to put it. one 1010 Give me a call and let me know what your experience has been. And do unreasonable cleaning tasks deter you from actually going the Airbnb route, if that's something that you've done in the past, and back to the old traditional hotel where somebody makes your bed, somebody cleans up your bathroom, somebody does everything for you, and you simply pack your suitcase and walk out the door. I don't have a problem with keeping things tidy, but I will say having to actually do anything more than than what the CEO of Airbnb has lined up really makes it a less holiday type option for me and makes me rethink I might go back to a hotel. one 1010 Let's go to Mark in Montreal. Go ahead, Mark. Okay, first of all, I would never take I would never take an Airbnb ever ever. Why? Because when I'm going to go on when I'm going to go on a vacation, I want to unpack my bags. The hotel is clean, everything is done, and I know that when I go out for the day, there're going to be other people cleaning my room, but with an Airbnb, I'm not uh, 
So go on vacation. You don't want to do everything you want yourself. You want other people to, uh, to you know, to clean up. You want everything done. That's a vacation. Airbnb, I've cleaned out people's messes. How do you know who was there? How do you know if they're going to be clean? You know, they say like a lot of horror stories where you give a deposit to someone, give a deposit, but how do you know exactly what the Airbnb is? And, you know, uh, I just find that a vacation is a hotel, and that's how I find it. I find it's cleaner and everything's done, and then that's it. That's all. You know what you're going to get. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Anthony from Hamilton, what's your thought on this? Go ahead, Anthony. I just uh, returned from Europe, and I used one of the other ones. I didn't use Airbnb, but I used one of the other ones, and they all have a cleaning fee built into them, and I didn't have any trouble. I didn't and I didn't feel I needed to clean the room um, or do anything else. Yeah, I'll say that's largely been my experience. Now, did you find in some of them uh, that, you know, you might have to take out your garbage or something of that nature, make sure all the windows and doors were locked, like a few little housekeeping things like that? Did we lose Anthony? All right, let's go to Corey in Port Credit. Corey, what's your experience been? My experience has been uh, great, but it's a little bit different. I use Airbnb for business and on vacation when I'm going for more than 30 days. Then it's worth it because you get uh, usually a 30% discount. Airbnb is now not for the short term. It's very expensive to just rent for a couple days because of the fees. But if you do it in the long term, but I'll I'll preface this. At the end of the day, you should do what your parents taught you. You should leave it the way you got it. So you should be cleaning up after yourself, whether you're at a hotel or wherever you are, in my opinion. It's just uh, the human thing to do. And I clean up after myself all the time. And if I go to a hotel, I'm paying for that service. And I will go ahead and uh, clean up a little bit. But I always clean up, and just like when you rent a cottage, you have to leave it the way it is, or they charge you a cleaning charge. So that's the way I look at it. But I clean up anyway, because yeah. that's just, to me, the the human thing to do. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not as... Uh, a- I'm not quite the same as you in terms of why I do it. My motives are a bit different. I just don't want people to think I'm messy. So I like to pull the sheets up on the bed. I don't make the bed in a hotel, but I pull the sheets up and I make sure the garbage is in the garbage and all that good stuff. Same with Airbnb. I want to have it at least look the way I found it. Thanks for that call, uh, Corey. 30 days in in an Airbnb is a long time. Veronica in Ottawa, what's your experience? Well, um, I rented an Airbnb, BRBO, same thing, um, for three months, and we walked into a giant mess. Oh, and really? Because you pay ahead of time, and the, the company gives the owner ahead of time, we had to sue her because we couldn't stay there. But I left the place better than it was <laughs> when I found it, because at least I had the floors brushed and uh, the garbage put out. That's really all I expected when I do normal Airbnbs anyway. I come right. in, it's beautiful. I clean up, clean up meaning me. I put the dishes in the dishwasher, you know, and I, you know, I, I do that even as a hotel. When you got the hotels with the kitchenette, I put the dishes in the dishwasher. I just close the garbage. Veronica, I thanks so much. I'm going to have to let you go. We're up against the news. It's Deb Hutton, News Talk Today. Join us after the break and we'll talk NASA.
Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I am Deb Hutton. So humans could be living and working on the moon in this decade. How does that make you feel? Does it seem like this was something long, long, long off into the future? Last week, NASA launched its long-awaited Artemis One flight, the first of several missions to establish a human presence uh, on and around the moon. Joining us to talk about that and what things are going to look like on the moon in the next eight or nine years is Howard Hugh, the head of the U.S. agency's Orion Lunar Spacecraft. Howard, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me on today. So what does it mean living and working on the moon by 2030? Fill us in. Well, you know, we have a very uh, um, challenging uh, campaign to return back to the moon. We started with Artemis One, an uncrewed mission that is uh, checking out the Orion spacecraft along with the uh, space launch system that you saw, the big mega rocket that uh, took us into space. We're... uh, Actually, uh, we did a first burn last night, uh, or yesterday morning, actually, um, where we uh, uh, are injecting ourselves into the lunar orbit, a distant retrograde orbit that's going to check out the systems for several days and then return the Artemis 1 spacecraft back home safely. And then we will progress towards our Artemis 2 mission, where we have a crew on board the Orion spacecraft, and we will be checking out the crew systems. Uh, And then finally, on Artemis 3, we will have our first landing and uh, we'll use Artemis to dock with a human landing system or HLS and uh, transfer the crew down or into that HLS spa- uh, spacecraft. And then they, they will go down to the surface of the moon. And then, and then uh, subsequently after that, uh, Artemis 4, 5, and 6, and so on, we will be utilizing a gateway, which is an orbiting platform around the moon that we're also building. Orion will take the crew to that gateway they will then transfer from the gateway to a, to a human landing system or HLS and then go down to the surface where they'll spend several days uh, exploring uh, the lunar surface and uh, uh, executing scientific uh, experiments and collecting samples uh, from that lunar surface. Um, that's, that's, that's our ambitious plan that we have. We call that the Artemis campaign. And that takes you to the beginning of the next decade, give or take? Well, it depends. You know, these missions are, are certainly uh, uh, very challenging and a lot of pieces and parts. Uh, I named uh, several uh, important elements that would need to come together. And uh, we've got a timeline. Artemis One is first, as you know, and uh, we'll be landing on December 11th. And, uh, and then after that, we will uh, execute the next set of missions. And like I said, we will get an opportunity to land uh, first person of color and first woman uh, back on the moon on Artemis Three. So... Uh- I'm going to show my ignorance here, Howard. HLS, human landing system. So I have this vision of, you know, people standing there to grab hold. What, what does it actually look like? Uh, well, there's, uh, well, there's a couple. Of, uh, our our uh, first uh, human landing system is built by SpaceX. And you can uh, Google that. Uh, they've got their own design. And, uh, and, and then there's other uh, competitors looking to build future uh, HLSs or human landing systems. Um, that will allow us to uh, uh, take uh, crew down to the surface and back up to meet up with Orion or Gateway. And so this is the, this is the overall architecture. 
And uh, so there's various kinds of configurations. I, I don't know if you've seen Orion, uh, but we're comprised of uh, a crew module. And then underneath that crew module is our service module, which houses the uh, uh, propulsion, the power system, the thermal rejection, and then water and air for the crew to uh, survive. And then that backside, uh, what we, uh, part of that is called the European Service Module, and that's built by the European Space Agency as in partnership with NASA. And roughly how long would, would, when you get to the end of your series of missions, how long would someone actually be living and working on the moon? Yeah, that's, that's for, the, uh, uh, for others to decide as we progress. Uh, the durations will be dependent on the um, infrastructure uh, we have on the ground. We at NASA are also working in support of these Artemis uh, missions. We are also working on habitats, uh, rovers, so it depends on uh, the degree of support that these habitats can provide uh, for the crew that will be on the surface. And that will determine uh, the duration of being able to live on the surface of the moon. And and habitat is obviously uh, the environment that you're going to create. And, and just if you can, I realize it's, it's still a work in progress, but give us a sense of, of the kind of habitat that would be envisioned. Yeah, you can imagine uh, it, it could be a, a module, a living module uh, with an airlock. Uh, you would obviously have to don a spacesuit when you go out to the lunar surface, but uh, you could use an airlock to come in, and then you would have a home away from home uh, in these uh, habitats that uh, would be on the surface of the moon. And, of course, the first habitat would be your human landing system. You'd be living in that HLS uh, vehicle uh, that took you down to the surface, and eventually, as we grow more assets and more infrastructure, uh, you could expand and think about uh, permanent kinds of habitats that would be on the surface that you could uh, utilize to live. And that would depend on how long you can stay is depending on how capable and uh, what, what kind of resources you have on the surface of the moon to support the number of days you need you need on that surface. So again, I, I show my ignorance on these issues, but I, I think of sort of a, a, a little village of sorts, albeit a space village that that stays in place. Yeah, the idea is to, to again, um, you know, we're doing the first step with Artemis and it's a buildup. We're building up the transportation system with Orion. We will have a orbiting platform called Gateway that provides that access down to the surface of the moon. And then we'll, build, we'll be building infrastructure on the surface of the moon to support uh, these kinds of excursions and uh, be able to live uh, for multiple days. I'm uh, speaking with Howard Hugh, who is the program manager for the Orion spacecraft on board the Artemis One flight uh, from NASA. What's the greatest impediment that you face in this series of, uh, uh, of, the, of the program? Wow. Uh, I think we have uh, all kinds of technical challenges. Um, you know, just just there's a lot of things to do. You know, the deep space environment is very challenging. And like you were asking earlier, you know, how, how long could we live? You know, to support people uh, requires resources, um, water, air, uh, food. And so those are going to be, um, I wouldn't say, uh, uh, difficult things to do. Certainly, we learned a lot on International Space Station, uh, but certainly uh, a challenge in terms of getting all that logistics together, along with being able to build multiple elements to support uh, uh, these kinds of missions. Not only are we building Orion for crew transportation, but we also have to uh, 
also get these human landing systems. We have to get these uh, surf, surface assets that I talked about on, on the ground as well to, to support long duration types of missions. And so those are all needed and, and putting all those pieces together, uh, getting them through their uh, technical and, and programmatic challenges. So there's always budget and schedule, as you know. Um, those are all going to be pieces that uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking at and uh, trying to overcome. And is there um, sort of a next phase already planned? Obviously not not in the in the development uh, already, but is there another phase beyond this particular mission? Uh, if, if you mean just Artemis one, uh, certainly Artemis two, three, four, and five. No, beyond was, the Artemis, yeah, I was thinking campaign, beyond the Artemis, yeah, yeah. So so we do have what we call Moon to Mars and. And where are not myself, but uh, other people, my colleagues at NASA are, are certainly laying out that uh, plan as well, looking at uh, what that path looks like. Uh, obviously, no elements uh, are being built today. We're focused on Artemis, Artemis missions and those elements. But this, these are the stepping stones that we need to uh, go to Mars. Howard Hugh, fascinating stuff, program manager for the Orion spacecraft on board the Artemis One flight from NASA. We thank you for your time and, and for giving us a sense of what you guys are up to. Well, I really appreciate uh, having me on. Uh, certainly a, a historic time for us at NASA and uh, not only in the United States, but across the world uh, running the Artemis One uh, campaign or mission. Uh, for the Artemis campaign, and uh, we certainly appreciate having uh, been here and and, uh, allowing us to talk a little bit about that. We will be watching. Thanks again, Howard. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton. Coming up after the break, a peek behind the prep for the Federal Inquiry. Staying on the story, News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I am Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk Today. I just want to uh, take a moment here before we we meet our next guest to talk about some breaking news out of Ottawa. Three Atlantic provinces will be subject to the federal consumer Carmen price next summer, with their residents getting the quarterly rebate checks meant to prevent households from being worse off financially as a result of the program. This was just announced. In fact, the announcement is is still underway. I can see on our monitors by uh, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo, who announced the change. The three provinces, uh, which is Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland, uh, were able to use the provincial pricing program since the national requirements took effect in 2019, but that will no longer be the case after stronger federal carbon pricing rules kick in next year. By July 2023, only British Columbia, Quebec, and New Brunswick will have provincial carbon pricing systems for individuals and businesses with lower levels of emission. The pricing program for big emitters will only apply in Manitoba and Prince Edward Island after Saskatchewan moved to include natural gas pipelines and power plants in its provincial program. The announcement suggests political battles between Ottawa and the provinces over whether pollution from big industry should come with a cost are settled, while uh, a, a debate remains open around consumer carbon pricing. So we, I'm sure, will have more for you as the afternoon uh, unfolds, but that announcement uh, looks like it's just wrapping up out of Ottawa. Speaking of Ottawa, our next guest I'm so excited to talk to because this is a woman I have worked with before. Uh, we are on opposite sides of the political pers- um, spectrum but have both been involved in prepping 
politicians and in myself prepping prepping myself as a non-politician for public inquiries. And so I thought, given that this week the National Inquiry is going to hear from, in fact, is already heard from Marco Mendocino, the public safety minister, going to hear from a number of, of politicians, including the prime minister by week's end, it might be kind of fun to have a discussion about how you prep a politico for their appearance at a public inquiry. Joining me to do that, Sharon Carr, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Bill Morneau and someone who has done her share of prepping. Welcome to News Talk Today, Sharon. Hello. So I'm just going to set the stage a little bit because this is something uh, I have prepped uh, two premiers for inquiries. Uh, I have testified before a public inquiry here in Ontario myself. It is a very different forum. While you are being questioned by lawyers who have all of the legal training lawyers should have, and while there is a, quote, judge of sorts, none of the rules that apply in a courtroom apply to a public inquiry. The sort of things we see on TV or if you've ever been called for jury duty, a lot of those protections around what can be asked, what you have to say, incriminating yourself, some of those things, they don't apply in the public inquiry format. And so it is, in some cases, a bit of a free-for-all, and yet you're being questioned by very competent lawyers on some very sensitive issues. So Sharon, how did you approach prepping public figures for public inquiries? Yeah, you know, it's I, this is probably one of the most challenging things people, especially as political staffers um, or operatives kind of take on because there's different aspects to it. And like you said, it's not, you're not in a court of law, you're kind of in a court of public opinion, but with lawyers engaged in it as well. And I think the one thing that I learned personally from my time, actually doing it on both sides, like um, I've, I've prepped executives who've had to go speak at some of these, I would say, panels. And then I've also done politicians. And what I, I think the one thing that my key takeaway from this always is, is that there are political staffers who handle the messaging from a communications perspective. And then there's lawyers who help manage what you say from a legality perspective. And you have to, have to, have to keep in mind that Sometimes these inquiries can lead to other things. Like, for example, in my time, um, I've had to prep ministers who, for example, are being investigated by ethics commissioners or lobby commissioners or anything of that nature. So there is a different type of consequence at the end of it. So you need to make sure that you are prepping your boss to make the most compelling case without saying more than you actually have to. Because often in these cases, you also have say, members of parliament who are doing questioning, and that turns into a different spectacle. So it's like it's probably one of the most challenging things because you can't exactly say everything you want to say in the way you want to say it because everything does end up becoming, I would say, in the court of public opinion. Yeah, I mean, there is no doubt this more than any other environment that that I have done prep for because the the standard types of things that that political staffers prep for our, our media interviews or scrums or big announcements in the public domain, uh, certainly speeches that can be to a friendly or an unfriendly audience, and uh, and debates, uh, national debates, provincial debates during election time or other, other sort of debates of that nature. But this is different because, as you said, the legal team is such a big component. And anyone who's ever worked with lawyers will know that what a lawyer wants you to say and what you need to say for plain language public consumption often butt heads. 
it's like I'll use an example and and listen I'm not going to say anything that's not already public but for example in in my time in Ottawa um when prepping the former minister of finance there was things like there was cases around like the We Charity or SNC Lavalin and we had to prep for cases like that and both of those I would say situations were heavily publicized like extremely extremely front page news every other day and also had consequences on it and from a political perspective you want to make sure that you're getting the sound bite out to get the truth but sometimes it doesn't matter how honest you're being because it's going to get swayed into a different i would or get twisted by the press opposition who like everyone and anyone out there so something that i learned and it took a lot of patience and i would say um good legal counsel is is that First things first, I would say, is that you have to consider the legal implications. If if this is in front of a commissioner of some sort, ethics commissioner, RCMP, whoever the body is investigating it, you have to take into consideration the legality of it first. Doing so, you also need to manage the PR because that leads to things like election issues. So it's listen, it's not easy, and I, I sympathize with everyone and anyone who's prepping um, the ministers and folks who are doing the Freedom Convoy, um, I would say, hearings right now, but it's it's truly not an easy task. I'm speaking with Sharon Carr, who's a former Deputy Chief of Staff to, to Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau, uh, and who has done her share of prepping politicians for public uh, inquiries, public uh, committees, and that sort of thing. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking, okay, this is just people who are helping politicians cover up the truth, which in fact is not something that I will say anyone I've ever worked with is actually able to do in a public setting of this nature. It is just not something that you can do when you are under oath, which in fact at federal inquiries, provincial inquiries, public inquiries, you are under oath. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's, – it's one of those things, as I said, they're going – people are going to listen to you and I and say you're, you're just – you're withholding the truth. You're, you're teaching politicians to cover up the truth. But in actual fact, it's we know the truth. How do we make sure that we say it in a way that makes sense to the public, helps with whatever issue you're dealing with, but also make sure you're not incriminating yourself with something? And to your point there, so I think that's a really good point. And I think it's super easy in this day and age um, for people to say stuff and just kind of think that what they're saying is true. Like I was watching, I was watching the banter from yesterday's testimony. And um, for example, the lawyer for the Freedom Convoy came out and made a very, very, I would say, um, random and slightly inappropriate accusation against a lobby firm. And that type of stuff has consequences in these settings. It doesn't matter if it's a political issue or if it's like, it doesn't matter which side of the table you're on. You cannot lie. You cannot butter the truth up a little bit. Like you have to, people are scared when they go into these situations. I personally know when I've had to sit in front of um, some sort of interrogation, it is not something that's easy or quite frankly, pleasant. And you do your best to tell the full truth, nothing but the truth. And also, but just, you don't need to add that added color that you might in any other political situation. So for anyone out there who thinks that this is like a bunch of us who sit around and just find ways to cover things up, I would say it's quite the opposite. Like you're, you people, you're the people who are elected, you work for people who are elected and you need to make sure that you're keeping people who have faith in the public system. So it's not easy at all. And I actually would say that it becomes a bit more stressful because it is so public front and center. So, um, and we've, we've all faced it. It's not easy for anyone. 
No, and not the same protections if you were in a court of law. Sharon Carr, thanks for uh, sharing your insights into this. You're listening to Deb Hutton. It's News Talk today. Coming up, we're going to talk soccer after the break. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton, and it is soccer time here throughout the world. Tomorrow at 2 o'clock, the Canadian men's national soccer team will play its first World Cup match in nearly four decades. It's been since 1986. Here's what uh, Coach John Herdman had to say about tomorrow's game. And I think the competition element against Belgium will be a a real good test for the staff, for the players. Um, something we'll we'll learn from, but more importantly, something we're going to really go towards. And I think that's that's the opportunity we have here. I think coming into a game like this, we don't have a great amount to lose. Just genuine opportunity to make it our our cup final. News Talk Today tomorrow will host a, a pre-game prior to the 2 o'clock game special uh, leading up to the game. Mike Kaycook is uh, hosting that show. But we thought we'd talk a little bit about it today with someone who follows soccer so carefully, and that's Kevin Laramay, who is the host of Soccer Today, a podcast obviously devoted to soccer. Kevin, welcome to News Talk Today. Thanks for having me. So uh, we will I, we'll break it into two parts here just to have a conversation first about the games and the, and the World Cup itself. And then maybe before we, uh, we finish off, just get your take on some of the, the controversy that until the games began uh, this week, we, uh, we have all been engaged in. So give us your pick, first of all, and what you see <laughs> for the Canadian game tomorrow at two o'clock. I believe we're in for some great surprises, not only tomorrow, but on the 27th also, but tomorrow, Belgium, a team that, yes, Canada played once against in 1989, a friendly, the Canada lost to nothing. But this is, like you mentioned, Deb, the first foray into a World Cup since 1986. But in 1986, let's go back in time here. Canada did not score a goal in 1986. There were 24 teams in the World Cup in 1986, and Canada finished 24th with five goals against, no goals for. Heading into tomorrow, Canada's goal will be to score a goal, but also to establish its new history as a program, as a soccer nation. For one of the first time in their history, they cracked the top 40 earlier this year in the rankings globally. And in 2021, they finished first in the entire world for the amount of goal score. And that's where it becomes really interesting is Canada's attack in 2021 on the global stage was the best, not only because of Alfonso Davies, who's been gathering attention across the headlines, across channels, radio, different platforms. But let's not forget Jonathan David, who is my pick not only to propel Canada to maybe a surprise draw against Belgium, but to also go get that first goal in history for Canada at a World Cup level. Jonathan David, a prolific goal scorer with his couple clubs at the top tier leagues in France and in Belgium. Of course, he has some history playing in Belgium with some players that are actually playing for the national team. But Deb, Jonathan David scored a lot of goals. 78 goals is in his career with the club teams. And he's seventh in last year's rankings for the club uh, goal scoring in his league. This year, he's fifth. He's having 
maybe the best two years of his life heading into a World Cup selection that will for sure propel him as one of the biggest goal-scoring superstar in the world. So while, uh, as you just laid out, we, we have a number of young players who, who are certainly uh, have people watching them on the world stage. Other things have changed, though, since Canada last played in a World Cup in terms of how we've approached our team. Maybe fill our listeners in a little bit on, on the changes that have brought us here, not just with the young players, but overall in terms of our priorities around soccer. Absolutely. Uh, the head coach of the national team right now, John Herdman, who was a, the head coach of the women's national team for a couple of cycles, won great bronze medals, if we remember in 2012 and in 2016, bronze medal that laid the blueprint for the team that won the gold medal in the last Olympics. He had success on that side and he has become the first head coach in the history of soccer to bring a team to the Women's World Cup and bring a team to the Men's World Cup. He is a pioneer in that aspect, being able to transition from the women's game to the men's game. It is the same game, just played by different athletes. That's what I love about John Herdman and his philosophies. And he's surrounding himself with the proper management, proper team of head coach with Mauro Biello, former head coach of Montreal in MLS. But we're seeing also a different approach where it's not just about defending. It's not just about the Canadian grit. It's also about talent. It's also about skill and speed. And I mentioned Jonathan David, Alfonso Davies. But to me, it's the average age of Canada it is maybe a bit deceiving. It's 26.9. But when we're looking at the actual age of their two most influential players, 22 years old, and that is a big difference compared to the other big teams in our group, which is Belgium, Croatia. They have 31 age for their best players, 35 on the other side for their two most influential players. So I do believe Canada's youth mixed with John Hurtman's adaptability. As a manager, he's given this Canadian team an identity that is malleable. It is fluid, depending on which opponent they face and Morocco, Belgium and Croatia are two different and three different type styles that they will play against and they have the history and the I would say experience of playing different styles they played six different formation in qualification with of course Alfonso Davies being used and a couple of different spots to really use him the best as possible to get the most out of his talent. I'm speaking with uh, Kevin Laramay, who is the host of the podcast Soccer Today, just setting uh, things up for the Canadian game tomorrow against Belgium at 2 o'clock. News Talk Today will be hosting a pregame special leading up to that. Of course, you mentioned uh, Croatia, which, which Canada hopefully will play on Sunday, and then Morocco on December 1st. Toughest competitor of those three, what do you see, Kevin? I believe that Belgium is actually the toughest competitor out of those three. Croatia, of course, was the runners-up of the 2018 World Cup. They lost to France in the final. So a lot of pundits are taking them as the best team in the group. Belgium is not on the best form. Their last six games, they have a 3-2-1 and one record. Croatia has a five wins, zero losses, and one draw in their last six games. They also are on a four-straight win streak. But to me, the age here of Croatia, 35 years old between Pericic and Modric, who are their two best players in my opinion, then we're seeing Canada have an advantage. And that's where the heat, that's where the 
playing in Qatar in November in the middle of a season where players did not have a month off or two weeks off to get ready for this World Cup to recover in time like they would in a regular Summer World Cup in the past. I think that will favor a younger team, a younger core players. And of course, you're only as good as your best player will show you how you are. And to me, that's where Canada will have an advantage. But that's where it makes Croatia dangerous. But to me, Belgium with players like Kevin De Bruyne and other players that we're not thinking about because Lukaku is injured for the first two games, probably will be back in the third game of Belgium. It does give Canada a chance to play Belgium without their best goal scorer. Yes, Kevin De Bruyne, who's the best assist leader in the whole world and maybe in the history of the game, will still be there. But Canada has an opportunity to maybe get a result there. But Belgium is still the most dangerous side to me because Croatia and the way they play, the age factor will actually give Canada more opportunities to have offensive chances. So I do believe Belgium tomorrow, 2 p.m., will be Canada's toughest test. If you had to place a bet on it, who do you think wins (laughs) overall? Not tomorrow, but the whole shooting match. Uh, that's very interesting because before today, I would have told you probably Argentina that, but earlier today, Saudi Arabia created the biggest upset out of maybe ever. I can't even remember as big as an upset as Saudi Arabia beating Lionel Messi and Argentina 2-1 earlier today. Argentina was my top three team, but I will go with my favorite here. And no, it's not my dear friends. It's not Leibler who are about to start. No, it is. Germany. I think Germany is the sleeper here. Germany has a young core of players that are not necessarily proven at the biggest stage and has a good mix of veteran with the young players. If we're talking about veteran from Thomas Muller, they have a great goalkeeper. They have a good system with a coach that is new to the international game, Ansi Flick. But there's a Canadian connection here. Ansi Flick is a manager that gave Alfonso Davies his first shot in the Bundesliga with Bayern Munich. Ansi Flick played that type of game on the width and used Alfonso Davies to make him a better coach. And I think he's bringing that mentality to Germany. And to me, Germany has a clear path to not only the final, but maybe to stand in the confession. Kevin Laramie, I got to let you go. We didn't even get to the problems with Qatar. Thanks so much. Soccer Today podcast. It's Deb Hutton coming up after the break. We'll talk Christmas shopping. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for today. And just a reminder, tomorrow, News Talk Today, Mike K. Cook will be here to host a pre-soccer game um, analysis, pre-game show before the 2 o'clock kickoff time. So I wanted to, again, lighten things up at the end of the show, maybe lighten things up. I don't know. It's a pretty tough topic for some folks. But as we see inflation run hot, we talked to Amanda Lang from BNN this more, uh, earlier in the show. She talked about how as mortgage rates and interest rates rise, we are cutting out as Canadians our discretionary spending. And of course, for many of us, Christmas can have a tremendous amount of discretionary spending in it. Are you hosting holiday parties? Are you doing as much as you would – 
1-855-633-1010. I want to hear from you. Are you making changes to how much you're spending, where you're spending it, how you're spending it, as we have just under five weeks to go before Santa arrives at all of our houses? 1-855-633-1010. I will say uh, there have been a number of studies out both here in Canada and the United States saying that people are thinking about putting the squeeze on their spending, particularly as it relates to Christmas spending and and what, as I said, we can call discretionary spending. Is Christmas spending really discretionary at your house? one 855 633-1010. Austin Delaney from CTV Toronto spoke with a number of Torontonians today after a survey came out that indicated uh, with a higher price for goods pushing so far up, 33% say rising interest rates have pushed them to the brink of financial despair and they are changing the way they live. Well, I have to wear like three jobs now just to afford to live here. At work, there's one... Um one of the nurses, she she actually had to sell her place because the interest rate had gone up too high for her wow. to, uh, to afford it anymore. So she's actually looking to rent. Now she's kind of going backwards a little bit, unfortunately. 74% of Canadians surveyed in this latest survey say they are cutting back on spending. 27% admit they are loading up their credit cards to make ends meet. And another 21% are cashing in investments to help ease the financial crush. And with a looming inflation, nearly three-quarters of Canadians say they are financially prepared to weather the bad times, but only for so long. Has all of this changed the way you are thinking about spending over the next few weeks? Are you going out to those Christmas parties? Are you hosting those Christmas parties? And will the stocking on the fireplace or under the tree look the same as it has in the past number of years? one 855 A third, 34%, believe that while they would be unaffected for a year, 38% think they have enough socked away to write out six months of a recession. Not that long, and we don't know what the future holds. An alarming 28% worry they would be done within the first month of a true recession. Let me know your thoughts. Are you changing your spending habits? one 655 1010. We do know that many Canadians have changed how they shop for groceries, making some very different decisions about what they bring into the household uh, for standard meals, cutting back in some cases on meats, cutting back on the fresher fruits and vegetables because they're just so expensive. I will say at our house, uh, milk and uh, margarine tend to be two things that I know the price of no matter what. And both of those have gone up, margarine in particular, and maybe it's just the kind I buy, but has gone up almost double in the last 18 months or so. What are you finding? Are you saying to family and friends, hey, let's do something different this year in our spending. Let's not buy those gifts that we've always bought over the years. Let's maybe just get together instead of purchasing something. Or have you even thought about it? Is it just that you haven't gotten into the stores yet and haven't really thought about how much 
you intend to spend over this Christmas season. One of the things that definitely has gone up are real Christmas trees. There has been both a shortage and, as we all know, whenever there is a shortage, a rise in the prices of real Christmas trees. I will say it's still my intention. We put up an artificial one uh, on Sunday. It's still my intention to get a real Christmas tree. But there really uh, may not be one available because of the shortage. But it's something I would still like to uh, to to do for our family. It's part of our tradition. One eight five five six three ten six three three. 1010. Give us a call and let us know uh, where you are. Getting a number of texts said, same for me this year as last because we're both working but planning a lot and won't be spending the same. We're already in a recession. So far, I have have curved my spending a little bit. My husband has nine siblings. Each has three to four kids. That's 22 nieces and nephews for him in the past. We did buy for all of them for Christmas, but this year we have no plans to buy. Feels bad because he's uh, the uncle that doesn't give gifts if that's what we do, but it's just too expensive. one 1010 Is this changing things, the current economic situation, and probably as importantly, the pending economic situation in our country, rising interest rates, higher costs of uh, carrying a home, in many cases, higher rental costs. Is this something that means that whatever is left at the end of those bills that we must pay, you are going to do far less Christmas shopping than you've done in the past? Let's hear from Frank in Toronto. Frank, uh, have you changed your spending habits as a result of the recession that we may well be in? Yeah, a little bit because the prices of everything have gone up. Uh, so, you know, looking at what to get and what, where the prices are at. But uh, I've pretty much almost done everything already. You're done your Christmas shopping? Yeah. Oh, my I gosh, Frank, my you're phone. one of those people. No, no, I'm having <laughs> uh, hand surgery on December the 7th. So I'm going to be out of commission for right up to Christmas after that point. So I made sure I got the tree up, I got the lights up, I got everything done pretty much now before uh, before the 7th of December comes. Oh, well, that, that is important planning, and we wish you luck with that. Did you find the prices for the Christmas gifts that you would normally look at? Did you find them more expensive this year? Yes. It, it, it drove me more to looking at sales and trying to find... Uh, the same things at, uh, at lesser prices, looking at the Black Friday, things that I normally wouldn't care about or even look at. I'm, I'm looking a lot more closely at it's just, and the, the price of the food now, it's like, you know, you want to have family for dinner, for Christmas dinner, can't do it. it it's just, it's getting to the point where that's going to be close to, a, that would be like close almost to $1,000 just to do Christmas dinner and everything else. All right, Frank, thanks for that, and best of luck with your surgery. Thanks. Yeah, again, texts are are flooding in. A single woman who who rents, pays all the bills, uh, she's alone, but she won't be buying uh, gifts for her family, her nieces and nephews this year. Just can't manage the increases across the board. I do wonder about uh, Christmas parties. We've been invited to a number, and uh, it, it is expensive. There is no doubt about it. My friends, that's it for our show. It's News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton. Uh, tomorrow, we look forward to a pre-soccer game, pre-Canada show uh, with Matt Cook. Enjoy the rest of your day. You're listening to the iHeart Radio Network.